0: Bilingual in America. Tunei elloga fi America.
1: Bilinguismo negli Stati Uniti. Bilingue in America.
2: Serbilingue in America. 在美国能说两种语言的人。Hi,
0: I'm Suzanne Lassen, and this is Bilingual in America. This week on Bilingual in America. Yarina and I continue our conversation with dual language royalty. Yes, Dr. Virginia Collier and Dr. Wayne Thomas. I would venture to say that for any of our listeners who have gone through a TESOL or bilingual certification program, that you are familiar with Dr. Virginia Collier and Dr. Wayne Thomas's six-line model. It is studied by almost all of us. Their six-line model captures the long-term achievement for English language learners based on their participation in different types of program models. For the past 40 years, Dr. Virginia Collier and Dr. Wayne Thomas have conducted numerous longitudinal studies. These studies reflect how two-way dual language program models are both efficient and productive, and actually probably the best method of instruction for students who are emerging bilinguals. Let's listen in now and hear them speak about dual language And their love language, data. You know, Dr. Collier, I had read somewhere that you never intended to be a teacher. So how did teaching actually choose you?
2: (laughs) Oh, um, yeah, my parents were both teachers and I saw how hard they had to work. So I decided, oh, I'm never going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, not for the faint of heart. Definitely not. (laughs) I was nursing my second daughter um, and determined to stay home until both uh, girls were in school, at least. And um, uh, I, I mean, I, I did various little jobs, but not not teaching. And then um, we were in a town where they needed a high school Spanish teacher and somebody found out that i spoke spanish and insisted that i had to apply for the job and i said no i'm staying home with my daughter and um but they uh they pushed and pushed and finally i said yes and um <clears throat> i couldn't believe how much fun i had <laughs> i just oh i just had a blast um just you know, immersing my students in Latin American music and getting back, in, back into my Central American days growing up and and just really having a, a good time. And I got to teach in a room that was, um, the school was overcrowded. So they had a, a trailer out on the side. So we got to make a lot of noise. You know, I didn't have to keep my class real quiet. And um, I, I had so much fun with it. And that I got hooked. (laughs) After that, I said, okay. And uh, we moved to DC. um, And I applied to the DC public schools um, to be an ESL teacher. And then it went on from there. And then they started the bilingual program and my daughters got to attend and and it was wonderful. (laughs)
0: Yeah, you know, I think if you asked five people what word do you associate with being an educator? Very few would say joy and fun. And <laughs> yeah. It's so nice to hear that because it is true. There is nothing that brings the greater, a greater amount of joy. And that moment when the light bulb goes off mm-hmm. for that child, and you know it's because of your planning and preparation that it has happened. I still, I'm still younger than you guys in my career. This is only year 25 for me, but yeah. there is nothing more magical than that moment.
3: Yeah, And part of what we occasionally call the beauty of dual language education is this tends to happen more often in dual language classrooms, because the outcomes for students are so more advanced and so much uh, more emphasized. And teachers get that kind of personal feedback to a much higher degree than they might get in a traditional remedial classroom. Mm-hmm. So that's an, if that's an important outcome for, for a teacher, then you want to be a dual language teacher where you get a lot of that. Uh, on a much more frequent basis than you might otherwise be able to experience.
1: Yes, we can see that. Well, I'm so glad that teaching found you, chose you, and, and just created this amazing legacy of work that you continue to build upon. So Dr. Thomas, we we know that um, for you during the beginning years of your teacher life, you served. you had mentioned as a math teacher and a physics teacher, and I think I also read that you did computer programming, and and you served as an administrator. So then how was it that you found yourself in this niche? Now? Well,
3: fortunately, I can blame it 100% on the lady who's sitting next to me. <laughs> ah. You may have heard the story, at least partially. We We actually met at the first faculty meeting at George Mason University in the fall of 1980. And even then, she was talking about bilingual education and how good it was. And, and I had come from a English-speaking, monolingual background, having been raised in Central Virginia. Uh, in my family, immigration is a 300-year-old issue, you know, the, the Scots and Irish that I'm descended from were here in the early 1700s. And, and the and, Cherokees even. And the that. Cherokees before that by several tens of thousands of years. So anyway, uh, the, the fact is I knew nothing about uh, English learner issues or about English learners. Um, I had a lot of experience with Title I and my, my doctoral dissertation, my work in the school district was evaluating Title I and special needs programs. So I, I had pretty good background on those. Uh, They were an at-risk student, but now she's talking about a whole bunch of different, uh, a different at-risk student group that I knew absolutely nothing about. So naturally, I was intrigued uh, with, with all the stuff she was saying, especially since As far as I could tell, she didn't have a lot of research-based evidence to say those things. (laughs) At that time, she was making largely a theoretical case or a Mm -hmm. case based on perhaps research that had been done in other countries around the world, Mm -hmm. Uh, but there wasn't a large body of Mm -hmm. US, I mean, there were some, but not a terrifically large body of US-based research at that time, at least not that I was aware of. Uh,
2: and he thought I was crazy, of course. I,
3: I didn't say that, you know, right? I was going to not say that, but she insisted on bringing it out. Yeah, I thought she was uh, a little short of a full load on a lot of things, yeah. You know, but it had to do with bilingual education. <laughs> I and mean, basically, my my reaction was the same as many native English speakers, probably still today, is... Well, gosh, they're only going to get half their instruction in English. How is that going to work well? You know, uh, I don't think that's going to work well. And especially if you brought to the table a remedial orientation, which I had brought from special needs and from Title I instruction. You know, you break the curriculum up into a thousand pieces and then you operate one little piece at a time. And, and uh, basically, you guarantee that way that achievement gaps are going to happen because you slow the, the rate of instruction down so the native speakers or the other comparison groups pull right away from the students who receive immediate, remedial instruction. So I was I was aware of that much. but what I did not, Realized then, and I believe I now realize, having had been smacked in the face with uh, millions of records of, of student records of uh, from test scores and such, is that these students um, actually experience a lot of cognitive development, not only from being exposed to a second language, but from learning the curriculum and mastering the curriculum in a second language and that and, kind of and
2: not losing their first language, and not
3: losing their first language they that, the key. that you see i had no clue about really? any of that stuff this, this was all new stuff to me and she first explained it theoretically and i go yeah that kind of makes sense i suppose but um i i still have some have my doubts about whether this is going to work in the real world of an educational system a school district like the one i came from um so one thing led to another.
2: He said, well, I can be convinced by data.
3: <laughs> I think I said something like, I don't know the answer, you know, but I do know how to find out. And so <laughs> we decided to analyze an entire school district's worth of data. One of the larger school districts, uh, uh, tenth, late, the nation's 10th largest school district in the late 80s, asked us to look at their programs. And we said, oh, boy, talk about an opportunity. We we're ready to go here. And so we did, we looked at it, and I think even you were surprised. Oh, I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I, astounded.
2: Yeah, that, that was when we first found how long it takes for um, students who are not proficient in English when they start school in the U.S. to, to get to grade level in their second language. And and it's not just how long it takes to learn English, but it's much more than that. It's how long it takes to, when you're doing schooling in your second language, how long it takes to get to grade level and what things influence that process. This
3: district took great pride in its English-only program. And they did Mm -hmm. everything from a process point of view, from all the inputs, all of the enabling stuff, the teachers were extraordinarily well-trained, the classes were small, the curriculum was well-implemented. You know, they had all the things going for them. But when you look at the long-term, not the short-term, the long-term test scores were, oh my, you know, it's like, are you kidding? This is what we get after five years of instruction, all in English? I I personally couldn't believe it could possibly be, it was an 18th or 20th percentile mm-hmm. score or something like that uh, for English learners after five years. Oh my, that yeah, we need to do much better than that. And so that basically convinced me that we need to spend a lot more time on this sort of, on this type of program. If what she's talking about really does work, uh, it will be able to make a great contribution by greatly improving what we found of an English-only program and an extremely well-implemented one um, in our first major study. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Yeah, okay.
1: (laughs) Well, I was just captivated in... That whole share, and what I really got is that your love language is data, <laughs> and and because it was data, how that really hooked you, and and look at the beautiful work and the beautiful
3: thing done for
1: for education.
3: You have to remember that my original background, I didn't say this earlier, was in astronomy and physics. I was an undergraduate and I was an astronomer. I worked at an observatory. I built both computer programs to build stellar interior models, you know, and stuff like that. I just decided that I didn't want to do that the rest of my life, that I wanted to work with people and education rather than just theoretical models. Uh, Of course, these days, astronomy is much closer to being a lab science, and I would probably be more interested now that you can actually examine pieces of the moon and Mars and things like that, but anyway. Uh, The fact is, yes, I've always been oriented towards actually looking at the data and not just making assumptions, uh, but looking at it comprehensively and looking at it in the long term. And so we we actually popularized, I think, the idea of not just relying on short term results, because Mm -hmm. as you can tell by looking at our studies, The short-term results are completely different from the long-term results. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the long-term results are the ones that matter. We don't don't lose sight of kids after two or three years. We want them to go all the way to the end of high school and graduate. So it it seems to me even now a major surprise that looking long-term was something that educators in this field resisted for so long. They -hmm. all wanted to do one and two-year studies, and you basically don't find out anything but short-term effects in one or two years. Right. The long-term effects are the ones that matter and they are much more difficult to produce than short-term effects.
1: And so important that we remember that for educators and for our families too, you know, because sometimes families are fearful when they see, oh, my child's not reading on grade level in their native language. Oh, I have to, you know, pull them out to mm-hmm. give good um family education as well. So that yes, they paid for the long haul. Yeah.
2: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Be patient with the process because it's going to happen. It's going to ha- turn out great in the long term.
3: It takes five or six years for a well minute program in dual language to actually show the kinds of results that you're hoping to see. Quite frequently, they don't show short-term results. They The results after two or three years are frequently the same as other alternatives programs for English learners but by year five or six and especially when you get to the end of elementary school and middle school that's when the differences and the advantages that dual language students have with regard to their cognitive development really began for the first time to show on the tests uh, most tests that school districts use don't show cognitive development until later elementary school they don't the items on those tests simply don't measure the cognitive development that's going on until late elementary, early middle school. And that's why the the our six-line graph for dual language keeps on going up at the end and at the beginning of middle school. Yeah.
1: Mm. So, okay, so you
3: were I kind of wondered a bit there. You were asking about uh, uh how I got into dual language, I guess. Should I say any more about that, other than it's all her fault?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we got it. Okay. okay. All your
0: fault, Dr. Collier. All your fault. <laughs> I, I was thinking to myself, what a chance meeting that was at that first GW Mason, right? You have Back no ago. idea. Yes. <laughs> for you guys, this has probably been the the most exciting professional journey for the two of you, thanks to that that one meeting where you sat next to each other in fall of 1980.
3: Well, we should say that we became, uh, we were both married to other people at the time. Uh, so, you know, it it, uh, it took a while for things to develop. We actually became professional friends for several years. Uh, sure. We didn't actually get married until five years later. Uh, so it, things took a while to develop, but <laughs> I did think she was crazy right from the beginning. There's no doubt about that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Luckily, crazy didn't scare you, right? It intrigued you and you were like,
3: right. I need the data
0: to support that. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, since 1985, right, you have joint award-winning research and life's work that continues to leave major impact. And as we've seen in one of your publications, because there's so many of them, uh, validating the power of bilingual schooling, 32 years of large-scale longitudinal research. What would you say rings true now that also ran true then?
3: Well, I'll start again, if you don't mind. I... I have realized fairly early on actually, but over time it has become a much more profound level of understanding on my part. I could be a slow learner, I need to be convinced of things. Uh, That dual language is a much more efficient and productive form of education. And I mean those words in the econometric sense. And if you are ever, ever taking any courses in economics, the economists love things that are efficient and productive. And they have things like production functions and all kinds of stuff that studies how programs and other uh, economic enterprises develop. And productivity is not something that's often used with respect to education. Dual language enables students to learn more efficiently, better, faster, more comprehensively, both for English learners and for native English speakers than the alternative programs. In other words, dual language for English learners, it's much better than English only and even transitional bilingual ed for English learners. But even for native English speakers, dual language and a two-way program is much better than the traditional native English speaking curriculum that we all, at least many of us went through for native English speakers. It's better for everybody. And if you think of that in terms of productivity and uh, uh, and inefficiency, I've made the case to a number of economists on that basis, and they all understand what I'm talking about when I, I say it in those terms, especially if I express that mathematically. Uh, so that's an important 40-year understanding, at least from my perspective. This is a way better way of doing education than what we have done in prior decades for everybody.
2: Mm-hmm. It really is. We keep on being surprised by how much our research gets paid attention to um, in other countries. We've had influence on at least seven other countries choosing a policy of linguistically and culturally different groups in their country that they would be allowed to get schooling through their first language uh, instead of for one year or two years that they get to get it for six years or seven years, where the government recognized that that, that would make a huge difference in student achievement. And the I guess the the six-line figure that we're very well known for, we published that in 90,
3: The initial forms, Uh, yeah. 92,
2: 94.
3: Yeah, the Um, first version.
2: And uh, now that there's the internet and all of these ways for people to uh, connect together, every time we check to see, there's usually at least one million (laughs) research sites that refer to that figure. Uh, So it's it's had a pretty big impact uh, worldwide. And uh, we keep on being surprised at how uh, it gets picked up. We had researchers from South Africa who were going to do an analysis of what, six different South African indigenous mm-hmm. languages mm-hmm. and looking at, at bilingual schooling for those students all the way through primary school. And they said, now this work that you did was on a very rich country in the United States. Um, it wouldn't possibly apply to us. And they said, but we're, we're trying to do the methodology very similarly to the way that you did uh, your studies. And then they came back and they said, "Hey, you were spot on," uh, uh, and um, they said they found exactly what we found and didn't expect that at all. So, yeah, it's
0: reaffirming, right? It shows you that yeah. it's not just an isolated case for the United States, right? And that we're we're kind of slow, right, here in the United States when we look at <laughs> other, yeah, we're slow, yeah. And I'm not talking about countries that may be as Uh, economically advantaged, their education system involves multilingual opportunities for children. There isn't this idea that it will negatively impact any learning that takes place. And so that's wonderful, right? That now with the advent of online resources, social media, that research studies that before were not accessible to others are, are now just a click
2: away. Mm-hmm. Right,
3: yeah, mm-hmm. there's one more major point I'd I like to make. I, I like to make this point when sometimes in other presentations too, so I won't, I don't want to bore you with it. But the time is shortly coming when something an efficient, more productive form of education like dual language programs are will be not only a nice thing but necessary because new information is coming mm-hmm. so thick and fast uh, that. If we look ahead to what will students need to know by the year 2050, we don't know now because for nothing, no other reason, much of the stuff that will be imported in 2050, that year, 2050, hasn't been invented yet. And so we, if it hasn't been invented yet, you can hardly expect us as educators to lay out a curriculum which will enable students to be effective learners and effective members of society in, in that period almost 30 years from now. So I think my favorite quote on this, may I quote Eric Hopper sure. one more time? Mm-hmm. Eric Hoffer said, uh, this is a loose paraphrase, I suppose. Uh, In times of change, it's the learners who inherit the earth.
1: Wow.
3: While the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with the world that no longer exists. Hmm. That's enough to make you think about why, don't you really want to have the most powerful, most efficient, more productive form of education you can possibly have? Because students are going to be really contending with this tidal wave after tidal wave of new information, things coming thick and fast, much faster, much more uh, uh, comprehensively powerful bodies of information than we have ever experienced as humans in any previous period of human history, it's going to be tough going educationally in another 20 or 30 years just because things are moving so fast so far.
2: And so what dual language does so well is helps students learn how to access new knowledge right. and problem solve um, in collaborative settings where they're uh, they're working with colleagues that may be very different from them and learning how to get along together and dual just does such a good job of preparing our students for the future because uh, we can't know what they need to know right and so we
3: so i don't know whether we'll be around yeah. for 2050 or not but i'll tell you what i'm willing to lay you a bet and i am not a betting man i only bet on sure things okay i don't do too much about statistics Uh, I'll make you a bet that dual language education or something very much like it will be necessary, not just optional or nice, but necessary for students to just to get along from day to day and year to year by the year 2050. They're going to have to really up their learning game to keep up with how fast things are moving. I, I would be scared. You know, if I were personally asked, because I was educated for the 1970s, for goodness sakes, you know, I I was, uh, when I finished my doctorate in 1980, I thought I was God's gift to education. I've since learned differently. But anyway, it's been a real struggle for me to keep up. And I know the same is true of gender. Uh, when you when you work with doctoral students, you have to keep up because you have to be or you're expected to be on the leading edge. Uh, it's been a, a terrific race to keep up, to try to at least stay aware of of the important things that are happening. These students are going to have that even more so in the next 30 years. Uh, We have to really do everything we can to prepare them for information. Right now, they say the world, certain bodies of knowledge are doubling every five to six years, okay? Imagine if that speeds up. Everything humans Mm -hmm. learned in the first 10,000 years is doubled every three or four years now, or worse, there's no way to keep up unless you become a much more productive, much more efficient learner, and can learn independently and on your own and in a collaborative scheme. Those are gonna be essential. In fact, they already are important, but they're going to be absolutely essential skills by the year 2050, by mid 21st century. And I don't even wanna think about it after that.
1: Well, I wanna say that to me, That both of you are learners who have inherited the earth because you continue to do this beautiful work and you continue to do it with so much joy, so much passion, so much commitment through your writing. Uh, You know, at Bilingual in America, we say speak your beauty. And so Suzanne and I want to say thank you for speaking your beauty through your commitment, through your research action, through your writing, through your joy and continue to inherit the earth. Because
2: you're doing it beautifully. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. What an amazing conversation Yarina and I have had with Dr. Collier and Dr. Thomas. Collier and Thomas's story began at a faculty meeting in 1980 with Dr. Collier talking about bilingual education and all of its benefits. And Dr. Thomas wondering, is she crazy? Or perhaps she's right. And then thinking, I don't know the answer, but I do know how to find out and their work continues to this very day. With over 4,000 dual language programs currently operating in the United States and new ones starting each school year, it is our hope that more districts, more boards of education, more superintendents, teachers, and parents, as Wayne Thomas boldly states, will see that dual language is not only nice, it is necessary. Until next time, continue to speak your beauty.
1: Thank you for your interest in the stories we share. By sharing, following, and liking our podcast on anchor.fm, Bilingual in America, and our Instagram blog at bilingualinamerica.podcast, you are speaking your beauty. We welcome your comments and feedback and we appreciate your support. Follow us, like us, share us.